0: Okay, so some of y'all uh, know that last week, if you were paying attention during the prayer time, that our own Catherine Jacob was in Haiti uh, on mission and where providentially she was elected the, the president of Haiti. Uh, that's a joke. She wasn't. Um, remember when Wycliffe Jean, the rapper, w- was a presidential candidate in Haiti? Uh, I'm, okay, well, anyway. Uh, so you were in Haiti. Why did you go to Haiti?
1: That's a very hard question. Well, it's an easy question to answer in the sense that that's where God calls me to go. Um, I go uh, to help, uh, in a sense, rebuild the country. It's a mess. Um, And to help people who are living on the ground, uh, to help them getting
0: housing again. So they were in a bad place before the earthquake. The earthquake pretty much took them out, and then they've actually had a couple hurricanes since then. So it's almost as if... Not much has happened since the earthquake.
1: No, not much has happened. Um, they they're trying to raise themselves up, but it's just nothing. It's just nothing there, you know, uh, to do and uh, to bring themselves up. So they need our help. Yeah. Uh, so that's why we go.
0: And you went with Buck God Ministries. Uh, Stan yes. Buckley is the head of that. Stan was one of our preachers early on in the Lenten series, yes. former pastor of First Baptist Church in Jackson, yes. uh, Mississippi. And tell us a little bit of what you did during the week.
1: We, uh, we did a beans and rice ministry where we give out uh, about 25 to 50 pounds of rice, uh, 15 pounds of uh, Uh, pinto beans and two quarts of cooking oil to every family in the village. We uh, did building desks. We built desks for the schools. We painted several uh, houses that we had built uh, previously. Uh, This time we had uh, we did something very unusual. The leader of our group decided it was time to have a father-daughter ministry going on Mm. and I wondered about that because we go in and we do hard work we build houses using concrete blocks and stuff like that. But this time it was a father-daughter trip. And, I, you know, all I could imagine myself being the matron there with a bunch of teenage girls throwing pillow fights and all. But it was, you know. It Tell was us more.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it was a wonderful, wonderful trip. The girls got very involved in everything we did. Yeah. Uh, and they just they loved it so much they all wanted to come
0: back. Mm-hmm. What, what was the highlight of the week for you?
1: Well, the highlight of the week, really, uh, you know, the girls being there, um, you know, we just do so much. I guess another highlight is going up in way, well, we're already way up in the mountains in Toman, uh, which is out of Port-au-Prince, way about two hours out of Port-au-Prince, up in the mountains, where there's no electricity, no running water. But we go even higher in the mountain in Matias to do ministry. um, And the girls took part in that. Uh, but then this time we went even higher in another village, uh, uh, Wapali, uh, and, and did ministry there. But mm. to see people uh, come, the children come from way, way, way up in the mountains where they walk a couple of hours to get to school. They have to walk. There's no, no transportation uh, by car or any other way to get, to get up and down. So they have to walk down to the school two hours and, and morning and then back um, but to see the kids so anxious to learn that they come that far to go to school mm-hmm. that's one of the many there's so many highlights yeah. I'd be here all morning telling you about them but that's yeah. one that just impresses my heart so much because um, for, first of all they cannot come to school unless someone uh, sponsors them but to come knowing that they really want to be there uh, that mm-hmm. is such a special thing
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, God bless you, Catherine. Catherine, uh, uh, if anybody wants to ask Catherine a question uh, afterwards, grab her, and, and she'd be very happy, I'm sure, to share what the Lord did in Haiti uh, with her. God bless oh,
1: you. May I, I tell you one
0: thing? You're going to, okay, yes. yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one of the, of the real, I'll tell you, the real highlight of my trip. I, um, when I first started going down there with this particular team, I had gone several times before, uh, and when I first uh, went, uh, the leader of the of the group uh, asked each of us to go uh, go around the room and tell about ourselves. And one of the things I told them about myself, I told them wh- who I was, where, what church I was from. But the one thing that uh, about me that uh, people don't know is that I am a power tool junkie. You know, I love anything that has to do with power tools. <laughs> And uh, we have a construction team down there. Now, it's okay that I participate in all the construction, the lifting of the blocks, the, whole, the you know, working in the cement and all of that. But uh, nobody ever paid any attention to my wanting to use power tools before. And so this time, uh, the leader of the group, I mean the, one of the presidents of the company, knew that I liked to do this. And we had to build some uh, really steep stairs for the guard tower. And he just gave me the skill saw and said, do the risers. Hmm. And I did the risers. (laughs) One, two,
0: three, four, five. Okay, you're all right. (laughs) What's
1: my skill saw.
0: Be a buzz saw for Jesus, Catherine. (laughs) Stairway to heaven. Well, I, uh, I've i been down to where uh, Catherine has been talking about and spent some time with Stan Buckley, and uh, one of my uh, profound memories uh, was seeing a, a little boy walking around the village with a cat with a shoestring leash, and uh, it was a little kitten, and, and he was really caring for it and feeding it, and, and I was just so amazed, and I thought the responsibility that this kid has for this cat at such a young age, and this little tiny kitten it's so impressive. And so I went up and engaged him a little bit in conversation. And I said, how long have you had the kitten? And he kind of told me. And, and, uh, and I said, well, uh, you're doing a really good job of taking care of him. I bet you this kitten is a really wonderful pet. He kind of looked at me and he said, no, 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 we're going to eat him. <laughs> and, uh, and that's when I knew I loved Haiti. Uh, so, so, there you go. Just let that stick with you for a minute. Just let you stick with you for a minute. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Let's pray. Ah, Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your arm is never too short to save. And we do pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in Haiti, uh, Lord, that we would not take for granted uh, how uh, we are blessed materially here in this country uh, and in this place. Uh, But, Lord, that uh, we might be given generous hearts, uh, hearts that uh, have a heart for those uh, who have not heard the gospel Uh, especially in Haiti. We pray that you would bless But God Ministries. And Lord, uh, even now, that you would come and visit us and speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you so much, Kathy. Okay, so we're going to pick up uh, where we left off in Acts uh, chapter 24. Uh, I'm not going to actually get into 25, I don't think, uh, today. But this is Acts uh, chapter 24, uh, and we are going to start with verse 21. This is Paul speaking uh, to Felix, the governor at Caesarea Maritina. Uh, There are two Caesareas. One is on the ocean. It's very nice, just north of what is now Tel Aviv. Uh, That's where they are. The other one is Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus took the disciples and asked them, who do you say that I am? And that's actually up in the hill country close to the Hebron Heights uh, on the Lebanese border. So uh, this is a really actually beautiful, beautiful uh, seaside place that you can go visit today. So this is Paul giving his defense before Felix. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, capital W, put them off saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, good grief, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The word of the Lord. Okay, so we're going to pick up a little bit on a the theme that we began last week on Paul really turning the screw uh, with uh, Felix and uh, Drusilla. What we uh, know about Paul's life is that uh, once the gospel had been driven into Paul's heart on the road to Damascus, uh, there's absolutely nothing that could be done to drive it out. I mean, you consider what Paul uh, dealt with uh, what, he, uh, what he suffered, uh, persecution following persecution. Uh, he's accused at Jerusalem, we heard a couple weeks ago, and now he's being arraigned at Caesarea, Maritina. Uh He's taken from one tribunal to another to be tried for his life, and the can keeps getting kicked down the road. But look how he always maintains the prominent passion of his soul. I quoted John Bunyan last week who said, "'If you let me out of prison today,' I will preach the gospel again tomorrow by the grace of God. And that is Paul's life. That's just his M.O. And even while he's in prison, he's using the opportunity wherever God has placed him. And that's a hard word, isn't it? Because where has God placed him? In prison, in chains. And yet Paul has no doubt that this is exactly where God wants me to be. I mean, let's admit it. How many of us have faith like that? that when uh, something bad is happening to us as we interpret it, that we would ever say, thank you, God, that you've given me the opportunity to be here in prison to preach uh, to the judge who will be able to sentence me uh, at any given point. Now, now, in this case with Paul, Paul knows that he's been uh, jailed unjustly and he makes that argument saying, look, it's actually not for any reason Uh, good reason that I've been jailed. They're going to try to tell you that I'm trying to cause treasonous behavior, dissension in the empire. Uh, But in fact, the reason why I'm here is a dispute amongst the Jews over whether or not there is a resurrection uh, from the dead. And even he goes before the Sanhedrin when he's in Jerusalem. Uh, And that's where he brings up the resurrection. The Sanhedrin is like the ruling religious council of the day. Uh, And then uh, he's brought before Agrippa, and he tells about his conversion to Agrippa, and he speaks of the grace of God with such conviction that we read that Agrippa himself cries, you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. You've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. And now he's standing before Felix, the Roman procurator, and he is uh, on trial for life or death. And instead of defending himself, what does he do? We see that he preaches, verse 25, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Until what happens to Felix? How does Luke describe his response to Paul's preaching? Felix is alarmed. Actually, Actually, it would be better translated that Felix trembled. Felix was so overwhelmed with what Paul... We don't know the details about what Paul is saying. This is outline form, right? Point one, righteousness. Point two, self-control. Point three, coming judgment. And he was so alarmed that he began to shake, and he says, go away right now, and, and I'll talk to you later. I'll talk to you later. Now, who's sitting with him while this is all going on? Right, what's her name? It's a great name, right? Something to put, you know, if you've got unborn children or unborn grandchildren, file that away. That's, you know, they will go far in life if you name them Drusilla. That's not true. Because what we find is that Felix's reaction shows that they've switched places, that all of a sudden Paul is standing in spiritual judgment over Felix, and Felix becomes a prisoner to sin. There's a total flip-flop here that happens that causes him to tremble, and he knows it because Paul begins to talk about the coming judgment of Jesus Christ, and that, that even the most powerful people uh, in the world need to hear of Jesus Christ. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful quote that says this about preaching the coming judgment. When once let a man believe the gospel and determined to spread it, it makes him a grand man. If he be a man destitute of power, intellect, and talent, it makes him grandly earnest in his arduous desire to serve Christ. In the little measure in which he can do it, but if he be a gifted man, it sets his whole soul on fire, brings out all his powers develops everything that lies hidden, digs digs up every talent that has been buried in its napkin, and spreads out all the gold and silver of man's intellectual wealth, displaying it all to the honor of that Christ who has bought it all with His blood. And so that's Paul's testimony. I mean, Spurgeon's obviously saying, you know, no matter who you are, if the gospel gets a hold of you, the good news of Jesus Christ, that He has died for you and you've been set free and you now have a relationship with the living God, when that grabs hold of you, uh, it changes your life. And no matter if you have small talents, because there's no such thing as an insignificant talent, and this is kind of depressing, but... Uh, I read a lot about preachers and one of the things that some of them do is they often wonder and in their prayer lives think about their legacy and you know how many of them have legacies? Almost none. I mean I could tell you about some of them right now some of the most famous preachers in their day and you would have no idea who they are. Now they do have a spiritual legacy that's been brought about by the Holy Spirit so you do have people who came to know the Lord through that ministry, who then went on to do thus and such and thus and such. And so that it's come down uh, through generations, a real apostolic succession, a passing on of the apostolic truth from generation to generation. Uh, But when somebody who has real ability, uh, God-given ability... uh, like Paul, is converted, all of a sudden that which was spent trying to persecute the church and disprove the gospel has now wholesale gone over uh, for the use of God in his kingdom. And it's a remarkable thing. And in the same way, Paul is preaching to Felix with an expectation that God is going to work on Felix's heart. And in fact, maybe God, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will convert Felix uh, through uh, his uh, through his preaching. And so he begins uh, to uh, preach uh, to Felix and he's afraid. Why does Felix get so afraid? What is Felix afraid of? Well, it's because of what Paul is preaching. Again, righteousness, self control, and the coming judgment. So there you have Paul and, I mean, uh, Drusilla and Felix sitting side by side, and they're there being preached to about the Christian faith, really saying that what's happening in this court, a matter of life and death to me, what I'm preaching to you is a matter of life and death for you as well. Uh, But the death that I will die uh, is not the final word. The death that you might die, uh, there's no recovery from. Uh, I read recently a quote about, uh, you know, in the early church, why martyrdom was preferable than heresy or over-heresy. Because in martyrdom, quite frankly, the pain that's inflicted by martyrdom is significantly less than that which is inflicted by heresy. And so that is Paul's word right now. Look, you can kill me, uh, but you need to know uh, that though this body be dead... Yet shall I live, and I will behold my Savior face to face. And there will come a a day when you're going to die, maybe comfortable in your bed, Felix. Uh, But uh, will you behold the Savior face to face? And will your trembling become a holy trembling? So Paul is preaching uh, an effective uh, sermon. Uh, It's an appropriate sermon. And so here's the deal with Felix. Felix was originally a slave he was freed by Claudius. I'm sure you can go watch the PBS series on that and see how he did. And uh, he became uh, one of Claudius' favorites, so much so that, um, uh, well, the thing about Felix was that he helped pander to Claudius's desires. And I'll just leave it at that. You can go look uh, into that. And at times uh, was uh, willing to help the emperor indulge in uh, all kinds of awful behavior, and because of this, became promoted and ran through the stages of Roman uh, preferment until he finally became the governor of Judea, which is not exactly a glamorous job. In fact, it's probably one of the worst jobs in the Roman Empire, and yet it's, it's a significant job, and so now Felix is governor there. Uh, you notice where he set up shop, not in Jerusalem, but where Right, Caesarea uh, Maritina, right on uh, the, the ocean. And in fact, uh, very shortly after this, uh, Felix never changed, uh, but uh, Nero ended up coming to the throne, and Felix was so corrupt that Nero had to recall him. Now, that's a real statement. Um, if Nero's saying you're a bad boy, then. Um, And and in fact, uh, Felix would have died if not uh, Nero's brother um, would have uh, intervened in his case. And so a Roman historian, Tacitus, said it this way. He exercised in Judea the imperial functions with a mercenary soul. Uh, And so when Paul is preaching, he's talking about righteousness because Felix had been an unjust extortioner. And And Paul purposely selects righteousness to be a topic in his sermon. And by the side of Felix is Drusilla. And in the verse preceding our text, we find out that she's called his wife. And it says that she's what? What faith is she? She's Jewish. She's the daughter of Herod Agrippa, the great, the one who uh, built the temple that Jesus now um, sees uh, and that Paul uh, would enjoy, the second temple. And she was, noticed for, she was noticed for being very charming, that she was very attractive, uh, she was quite a flirt, uh, she had once uh, been a, a fiancé to a guy named Antioch, who upon the death of Herod uh, refused to marry her after getting to know her a little bit, and so then she went and married Azizus, all these great dog names, Azizus, <laughs> uh, the king of the Amazines, who although he was a non-believer, he was a pagan, loved her so much that he submitted to the most rigorous rites of the Jewish religion in order to obtain her hand in marriage. And I think you know what right I'm talking about. But even after getting married, she just blew him off. Uh, She she didn't really want anything to do with him. And so she eventually uh, leaves him and goes to live with who? Felix. So actually, they say that Well, Drusilla is Felix's wife, but really she's a bigamist. She's actually married uh, to Emicenes, who's pining away after uh, this woman that he loves who has shunned him, and there she is now with the Roman uh, governor. So, uh, when he starts talking about the coming judgment, uh, you have to believe that even if he's not saying it, uh, Felix and Drusilla are in the hot seat, aren't they? Uh, because everybody else, you know, there's a way to preach without have, without saying what you really mean. Uh, and you can imagine that everybody's gone from looking at Paul to looking at Felix and Drusilla wondering what in the world uh, are they going uh, to do about this? And so it's no wonder that Felix trembles because all of a sudden, Felix must have really trembled uh, understanding this flip-flop and roles of judge and prisoner uh, when... Uh, how appropriate it was that Paul preached in that last point about the coming judgment. And think, I mean, Paul probably talked to him about the great throne of judgment when the books are opened and God himself will be the judge and the voice of the trumpet that will either say, come blessed of my father or depart from me for I never knew you. Spurgeon said, he petrified him, nailed him to a seat, opened his ears, and made them listen. While the stern and impassioned earnestness through his hands were bound with chains, he used the liberty of the gospel in upbraiding him. Well, no wonder Felix trembled. Uh, Paul did what every minister of the gospel ought to do. He selected a topic appropriate to his audience. Now... This is something that people have to be very careful about because as I mentioned last week, have you ever heard a sermon in which uh, all of a sudden you feel like the preacher's gone from preaching to meddling? Uh, they make a point and you think all of a sudden they're like, they know this about me. And I've only told one person and they've ratted me out. And, so the only, and they've somehow it's gotten back to the preacher and the preacher's now talking to me about that. Uh, or you're looking at it through a certain lens, and I hope that you have enough time in the pew to realize, one, the preacher has no idea, unless you've told him or her, about what you're going through, and so that it actually may be God's Holy Spirit uh, who is speaking uh, to you. And I have had that go both ways. I've had people who have uh, um, heard, uh, uh, for instance, there was a lady in Beaufort uh, who uh, in the receiving line was coming through, and she said, I bought a house in Beaufort. And I said, well, that's really lovely. What, what made you decide that? I know that you were worried about whether or not you're going to stay in Beaufort or, or, or move somewhere else. And she said, well, it was because of that sermon that you preached and what you said made me realize that God wanted me to stay in Beaufort. And I thought, I said no such thing. <laughs> um, um, and yet, it, it turned out that actually God had spoken to her in a way that that, that that's what she heard. Now, again, that cuts both ways because I've had some people who have been very angry with me thinking that I'm, actu- I'm saying one thing when I'm actually saying something else, right? They think he's talking about this and I don't like it. But in fact, that's something that I hadn't even occurred to me uh, what was going on. This happened uh, in my prayers about a week or so ago uh, for the Lenten lunch preaching series. You know, we have that opening prayer thing and we pray for those who are troubled in sorrow and sickness, need, or any other kind of adversity. And when I got to troubled, I kid you not, probably 20 people have come up to me and said this. They heard me pray. We pray for those who have been trumped and the, instead of troubled. And so people thought that I was making some kind of political statement uh, in the midst of the prayers. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't say it. Uh, nor, uh, you know, recently, even by some of my actions, you know, that I've gone, I went over to Rwanda uh, to be part of Sam's consecration service, and there were people here at the Advent who really thought that I was going over there to somehow plot the Advent's departure uh, from uh, the church, and Craig Smalley was listening to this and said very quickly, he said, let me assure you, Andrew is neither that smart nor strategic. (laughs) And, And he's right, he's right. So I think there's a difference between the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you uh, through uh, God's Word, through the preacher, uh, but it's also real easy for all of us, uh, with our own baggage, to project uh, onto the preacher what we think uh, that they're saying, rather than actually listening uh, to what God uh, might have us say. Now, there are times when uh, I've heard preachers that maybe have picked the appropriate sermon uh, but um, uh, I, I call into question, I love the story of John Knox, who was summoned by Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, to um, uh, Holyrood uh, Palace there in Edinburgh. And uh, he went with his Bible in hand, and he began, she went to talk about how they were going to sort of settle things in Scotland, and he went and he preached. Uh, I love the fact that he did it. You can read later on what he said to her. Not terribly effective. Uh, uh, And so uh, I love the fact that he was willing to go, but I'm not exactly enthused about how he went about it once he got there uh, with uh, Mary. But there is something about knowing uh, your audience. I mean, if you're going in uh, to uh, preach to a congregation uh, full of let's say teenagers, it would be ridiculous for me to get up and preach on uh, how can God use you in the fourth quarter of your life, right? Or even halftime. How is God going to use you uh, now that you're at halftime? That would be wholly inappropriate, wouldn't it? Uh, Or uh, for me to even get up at a funeral uh, and start talking uh, about something unrelated uh, to uh, what I ought to be preaching in the context of a funeral, which ought to be the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and in His resurrection and the victory over the death and the grave that we have. Now, that should be every sermon, uh, but especially in a, um, in a uh, funeral context. And so it's true about our own congregation. I mean, when I preach, I really feel like there is a dialogue that is taking place uh, even though you're not speaking uh, I look out and I see your faces. Uh, I know you. I I, I do know things uh, about you. They don't uh, always necessarily creep into the sermon, uh, but preaching is about really a relationship, which is why it drives me bonkers when I find out uh, very good churches, well-meaning churches, that pipe their sermons in from another campus, and so uh, and in fact, what they've developed now in one instance is not just a screen but a hologram. A hologram of the preacher comes out on the stage which would be awesome here I from beautiful Rosemary Beach Andrew Pearson I can just sort (laughs) of hey um, could you tell the difference could you tell the difference so uh, but it loses that preaching moment And so, you can go to a church, which it is a church, uh, but you start talking, you might say, oh, he's a a great preacher, but you have just as much relationship with him as you would any preacher on the television or radio, which those folks may bless you, uh, but how can they pastor you if they don't know you? I mean, even in a big place like this where it's really hard, uh, I don't feel that I'm ever more pastoral than I am when I'm in the pulpit. Uh, That's because... Shepherds have flocks, right? You know, a shepherd with one sheep, he ain't much of a shepherd. Uh, And so that's my opportunity to actually shepherd the entire flock when I am in uh, the pulpit. And there are things that are pertinent that need to be said. But what I will say is this, this is one of the reasons why we use the Revised Common Lectionary, is it prevents preachers from having their agendas enter into the pulpit. Now sometimes it's providential and the two go together and it works, and you can give a timely message, but we have a text that's been given to us, and our job is to be faithful to the text and preach it as it reads. That's our job. Uh, Anything else to say, well, that's what Paul said, but let me tell you what I have to say this morning. All right, that's going to be from the book of Second Opinion and is not helpful to anybody, but there have been preachers who have been willing, uh, not just to John Knox, but I think of Hugh Latimer, the great uh, preaching bishop, that there's a wonderful uh, painting of Latimer leaning over. There used to be an outdoor pulpit in the shadow of St. Paul's uh, Cathedral in London, St. Paul's Cross, and uh, the king would often go there for sermons. And there's this painting of a young Edward VI sitting in the royal box, And Latimer leaning over, and this boy is, you know, young teenager, and Latimer leaning over and pointing uh, to the one that he referred to as the young Josiah, this king that had delivered England and brought them into the truth of the gospel. And yet Latimer had a message to preach. And it was normally one of encouragement, uh, don't let up, hold fast to the gospel. uh, Because quite frankly, when you're holding fast to the gospel in a tumultuous culture, sometimes you feel like you're crazy, Right. And, and it's just nice to know that other people are crazy too. And, uh, and so to hear uh, the preacher to actually show some vulnerability and transparency so long as it doesn't take away from the gospel, for me is really... Now, I can't help it. And sometimes Lauren says, you know, there's a difference between, you know, she says, you know, a little light's okay, but sometimes you're a, you're a floodlight and kind of, you know, a little too much, a little too much. And, uh, but... For you to, you know, that's the thing about how you're able to do that in the pulpit, I think, is because you can identify with that person. And I think that you can see a lot uh, and tell a lot about a preacher if they're using you language or we language. If it's, if it's always, now there is a place for you, uh, but I always feel like it's us right, that this is a message that is working on me, and sometimes you can probably tell that, that it's, it's, it's been a week uh, when, it's, when it's working on me, which is why I don't like preaching in other places. Uh, I just kind of get up there, and I, I preach, and I don't know, uh, and we'll see uh, what happens, but I really don't like uh, preaching. Uh, impl- I do like preaching to other preachers, um, because they wear everything on their face, and I, I, I like to use a lot of you language with them, so, And so I think it's providential that the, word, that the Scripture passages that we get are the word that the people that God has given preachers to hear. Right, I've got a little quote up on my dry erase board that I look at every day, and it says um, that my job is to faithfully preach the Bible the people that God has given me to love, and that's, that's my job. Right? That's, that's my job, and so uh, to say uh, the least, um, if, when preachers ask me, well, what kind of advice do you have? I say, go for it, right? Go for it, but also get out of the way, right? Don't preach yourself, uh, but preach the text in Jesus Christ uh, as Lord, and that will be powerful and effective, and so... That's uh, what Paul is doing here to Felix. Uh, he's using some pretty strong you language, uh, but knowing uh, from what Paul has to say elsewhere that you know that he's also talking about himself as what? Uh, the chief of sinners, um, of whom I am the worst, right? He, he's self-aware enough to know that, and yet this preaching has caused Felix to tremble and for him to get out of there as fast as he can. And I hope we can pick up with... What happens when you hear the gospel and you tremble? What next, next time? But very quickly, questions, comments, concerns. Okay. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.